Today we uh, start a new series titled Modern Problems, Ancient Solutions. And the idea behind this series is just looking at issues that we deal with as a modern society, but how there's been solutions to them that are anchored in, in time as, as time has gone on. These answers have been available to us in a lot of ways. And, and the gist of it is this. With society changing at, at phenomenal rates like we see it today, faster than they say it, it's ever changed in the history, we also see that as a result, people are struggling with issues like anxiety, uh, uncertainty, issues of self-identity at record rates. As modern and as, as updated as we are in all these areas, these types of issues are plaguing our society. Not only that, but even with the modern advances of technology in the medical field and, and all of our abilities to heal and address new diseases, the fact is people are even more stunned by their mortality and death now than many generations were even in the past. Then you come to our law enforcement agencies. They have the best technology that money can buy. They have some of the best intelligence networks that you can create. I mean, if you haven't seen Quantico or Criminal Minds, you know that's exactly how things are like in the real world. <laughs> that was a joke, right? The truth is, they do have incredible technologies and things that they can use, and yet injustices run rampant in our community, in our nation, in our neighborhoods, at rates that sometimes we're even unaware of. You see, these modern problems that we face today uh, aren't just modern problems. There are issues that have been plaguing our humanity from the beginning of time. And today we want to see how there's ancient solutions for facing these problems. Some ancient solutions, many of them anchored in, all of them anchored in the scriptures, most of them as we go through this series, anchored in a particular book called the book of Psalms. And how people in the past face these same kinds of issues and were able to tackle them in a healthy, God-centered way. So today, as we start with this concept today and, and, and spend the next six weeks addressing some of these different issues, I want you to see some time-tested, ancient solutions for how you can face some of these issues that have become uh, great problems for us as a modern society. Our first topic today will be uncertainty. How do we deal with uncertainty when it comes our way in life? I remember one of the, the first uncertainties that Carrie and I faced early on in our marriage, apart from her uncertainty when she actually said I do at the altar. This was the first one we actually faced as a couple about two years into our marriage. We were living in Oregon. Uh, our families were from Minnesota, so we were 2,000 miles from our families. Uh, she was teaching in a little school district, and I was finishing up grad school and doing my student teaching, and I was coming to the end of the year, and uh, I was uh, one of the uh, final two candidates for a position at the school where I was student teaching. I was super excited about that. I had a really good experience at the school, and I thought for sure I was kind of a shoe-in for that job. She had a job at the district right next to us, and we were living in that area. And I'm thinking, man, for the first time, we're you know kind of be on our own. We're both going to have jobs, and things just looked like they were working perfect for us at that moment. And within one week. She got let go from her job because her district was, was making cuts and the first teachers, 
You know, we're the first ones to go. The last ones to come, we're the first to go. And that same week, I found out that I didn't get the job, that the other guy that had more experience than I did is the one that they ended up hiring. And so in a matter of weeks, in one week in, in particular, we went from being super excited and feeling like we were going to be landing on our feet for the first time in a lot of ways to suddenly being completely unemployed, 2,000 miles from our family, and having no idea of what the future held for us. My guess is that if you've lived any length of time, you've faced uncertainties like this as well. And it may not have been a job uncertainty for you, but maybe it was a health uncertainty, and you went in for a routine checkup and suddenly got news that totally turned your world upside down. Or maybe it was a financial uncertainty and you went from being in a spot where you thought you were financially secure that one little crisis and suddenly everything that you'd built up for many, many years was gone in an instant. Maybe it was a relational uncertainty and a relationship that you thought was stable and certain is going to be there for the long haul in a matter of moments became something that was turning your world upside down and was going to be different for the rest of your life. All of us face certainties. In fact, probably the only certainty that we have in this life is the fact that certainty will come. So today I want to show you four things that relate to uncertainty. In fact, I want to show you today four certainties of uncertainty that will certainly change how you think about uncertainty. Are you with me on that? Four certainties that will, about uncertainty, that will certainly change how you think about uncertainty. And we're going to see this from Psalm 11. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Psalm chapter 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's some Bibles in the chairs in front of you, hardcover Bibles. And if you grab one of the worship guides and look at the notes, the page number for this particular psalm will be there so you can turn to it. I'd encourage you, uh, if you do or don't have a Bible, grab one of them so you can at least see these passages in front of you. We'll also have them on the screen so you can follow along. But it'll allow you to uh, note where this psalm is at so in the future you have a resource to go back to when you face times of uncertainty. Four things, four certainties about uncertainty uh, that can change the way we think about uncertainty. Let's pray, and then we'll read and dive into these four things. Father, thank you for these truths. Uh, thank you that, that you are like no one that we've ever known. You write a book for us through your people, penned through many different people in many generations and throughout time, that throughout the test of time stands as true. Lord, we are a people who love the newest and latest thing. And yet sometimes we don't step back to examine our lives or even our society to see, is this newest and latest thing really giving us what it promises? because we're bombarded with messages of things that will make our life better, make us feel safer, give us more security, and yet statistics show, Lord, that we are one of the most uncertain, one of the most anxious, and we struggle with identity more than maybe any generation. So Lord, help us today to see solutions 
to these things that that aren't linked to a particular time or fad or culture or season but are anchored in truth and I pray that you will open our eyes as we open your word to that truth in Jesus name we pray amen Psalm 11 is a psalm about certainties four certainties in uncertainty that will certainly change how you think about uncertainty you're gonna have to memorize that before we leave today okay took me like the whole week to get that down all right first thing is we see in psalm 11 let's look at the first three verses this is a psalm of david so david has wrote this psalm and it's a prayer and some time of uncertainty that he faced in his life we don't know the specific details of it and sometimes that's best and God intended it that way so that we wouldn't say, well, that's not my exact situation. We'd instead just look at the whole psalm and say, wow, David, the King David faced uncertainty as well. Uh, and, and what was it like when he faced it? So what you're going to see in these first three verses is something that was common in, for David and, and even for writers at that time is they create kind of a, a fictitious companion that's dialoguing with them or asking them questions. And so in many of your translations, you'll see the opening statement, and then you'll see uh, quotations uh, starting at the second part of it, like flee, and that's his companion that's talking to him. So David's in this state of uncertainty, and he has this companion, uh, good or bad, we don't necessarily know, that's speaking into his life and saying, hey, here's what you should do in this situation. So it's, it's like this. It says, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul? So David's kind of confronting this companion. Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So here's my first statement for you. Uh, is uncertainty will reveal my security. Uncertainty will reveal my security. That's one of the first things that uncertainty will do in each of our lives. It'll reveal my security. If you look at this passage, look at uh, the statement, look at what David says, or the imaginary companion says. This is, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? So the psalmist is using imagery that was common to their day for hunters. Hunters would hunt birds and they used bow and arrows and they would be shooting after these birds and a smart bird that was in a tree could see, hey, you can see through the branches that the hunter could, could get a shot at him, but that bird knew after he'd been hunted for a while that if I go to a mountain and if I hide in a rock crevice, a couple things will happen or in a cave. One is if that archer tries to shoot at this rock, I don't know if the bird knew this, but birds are pretty smart, right? That, those arrows are going to bust when they hit rock. They don't do that no, so much with trees and branches. And you can hide in such a spot that a good hunter can't even scale the sides of some of these mountains, whereas trees, they can still get shots at them. So birds would take off and flee to find a rock or shelter like that. And he's saying to David, hey, in times of uncertainty, he says, flee like a bird to your mountain." It's interesting, I think, as you look at this passage, how he chose to write this. Because he doesn't say, flee like a bird to a mountain. He says, flee like a bird to your mountain. I know this idea that maybe if you're a hunter and you've ever hunted a certain deer or a certain animal that you know you're going after, animals have their certain skills and they know where to hide or where they know how to escape. And the reason those bucks are really big is because they're really crafty. They know the spots, 
that if they get to that spot, you're not going to have a shot at them. Well, I'd imagine these birds were the same way. And birds knew, if I get to this spot, there's no way that hunter is going to get to me. It was his mountain. It was his spot. And the psalmist is using this imagery to ask the psalmist, David, why don't you flee to your mountain? Why don't you go to your safe spot when things are uncertain? Take off, run, run to your security. And, and here's my question to you, and I think even the psalmist question to us. What is your mountain? When things become uncertain, what do you tend to run to for security, for certainty? Let me give you some common examples. Some of us use uh, control or anger. That's one of our favorite Mountains. Things are falling apart. My family's falling apart or my job situation isn't going the way I want or financially things are. And we think if I get angry enough, I can manipulate, I can control the people around me, I can control the setting and I can get the security back that I want. And that's your mountain. It's worked for you for years. It's been passed down. Your dad used that mountain. Your mom used that mountain. And that was your security blanket. You know you can control the people around you with anger. And that's become your mountain. For others of you, it may be money. Right? You know, it's not necessarily that you have to have a lot of money, but you pinch and you, tie, you, know, you hold, you cling, and you hang on to it, and you try to, think, to, to describe yourself as, I'm just frugal. But the fact is, as long as you have money, you have security and certainty. You can buy your way out of any situation or, or use money to protect you or you feel secure as long as that stuff is in place. And that's been your money. That's been your mountain uh, in a lot of ways. For others of you, it's uh, an addiction. That's a common mountain. Things get uncertain and it's nothing that a, a little bit of drugs or a little alcohol and just you escape for those things and those things help you basically not think about the uncertainty. They let you escape the uncertainty for a moment. But the problem with an addiction is the moment you come down off your high, the situation is even worse than it was before. You can escape for a moment with that mountain, but it's only for a moment. And it's only to come back to an even less certain situation. Another common one for us, especially as Christians, is isolation and separation. This is one of our favorites as Christians. If I can just isolate myself from the, the uncertainties of this world, from the evil and the challenges, if I can separate myself and I can create this little environment that's just totally safe and absolutely certain, then I'll have protection. And so your mountain becomes total isolation, separation, removing anything that could be uncertain in life, anything that might pose danger or threaten your security in life. And we run from those things. It might be us personally. It might be our kids. We try to keep them or protect them from any possible harm or uncertainty in their life. In fact, it's fascinating to me. Uh, I grew up in a generation, and, and just watching my generation and the changes that have taken place in, in my generation for how we grew up as kids to how we parent our kids has been totally transformational. I mean, I grew up, and most of you I know that I've talked to in my generation, we were the same. We walked to school most of the time. 
We rode our bikes, and when we got home, the first thing we did is say, hey, Mom, grabbed a snack, and we were on our bikes. I was literally gone from the time I got home from school until supper time. That was basically the rule. Just be home by supper, which would usually be about the time the sun went down, and we'd be gone at some park a couple miles away in elementary school, riding our bikes there, playing. Two handfuls of dirt was our snack. That's what we ate while we were out. We'd come home with bumps and bruises and scrapes on us. Never that big of a deal. And now we've become a generation where if we can't load our kids into the car from our garage door and watch them get out of the car and go into the school, we go into a panic. We never had cell phones back then. Now we feel like we gotta get our kids cell phones the moment they leave the house in a moment or we're in a, a sheer panic. We have to use antibacterial wipes every time we touch something. We have to eat gluten-free, non-GMO, you know, whatever, food. I mean, all this organic, this, that, or we're going to go into a panic. All these things, it's amazing. It's amazing that society has made it to the level that we are today because they didn't know all the things that we should be afraid of like we do. How did they possibly survive thousands of years to get to where we are today? It's signs of this. We so badly, as people and as parents, want to avoid any kind of uncertainty that we end up being the culprit for killing ourselves. We think that somehow we can remove uncertainty from our lives. I love how the psalmist includes this as well, even in this first section. Look at the next a little section in, the, in this verse. And basically, here's the point that it has for it. Is uncertainty will certainly come. Uncertainty will certainly come. Here's how the psalmist says it in the second half of those first three verses. He says, for behold. That's a word that means, hey, this is emphasized. This is what's going to happen. This is certain. He says, the wicked bend the bow. I mean, they're getting ready. We're like the birds, and the wicked are like the hunters. They're bending their bows. They're getting ready to take shots at us as the righteous. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If, and that's a poor translation of the actual Hebrew, the word that starts that sentence is the same as the word that starts the first sentence here. It's a for, it's, a, it's an emphasis of something that's going to happen. It's not a conditional clause like many translations put it. It should be since the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David's interacting with this thing saying, hey, since the foundations, meaning the foundations of security in this world, since they're destroyed, what are you going to do, righteous people? Saying they're, they are destroyed all over. It's not a, an if we can avoid it. It's, it's, it's going to happen. Uncertainty will certainly come. You see, the question is never if you will face uncertainty or calamity in your life. It's always when will you face it? And what will it look like when you face it? See, to attempt to live a life that avoids it or avoids it for your kids is as futile as trying to avoid tortillas in Laredo. <laughs> it just ain't going to happen. Right? And that's one of our problems. We spend all of our energy trying to avoid something that is inevitable in this fallen, broken world. Instead of 
preparing ourselves to face it when it comes in a proper way. You want to live as a healthy adult? Then instead of trying to avoid every uncertainty in your life, take that same amount of energy and learn to prepare for when uncertainty comes. That's what this psalmist is teaching us. You want to better prepare your kids for life? Don't try to prevent them from ever experiencing any uncertainty or trouble in this world. You will ruin them. Instead, teach them to face uncertainty because it's certainly going to come. That's how you equip a child. That's how you equip yourself. That's what the psalmist is telling us here. Third thing we see is, is uncertainty. Oh, excuse me, let's read the passages first. We're going into verses 4 and 5 now. It says this, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. So here's what David's talking about in here, and here's the principle, and we'll kind of break it down. The first is this, is uncertainty tests the nature of my faith. Uncertainty tests the nature of my faith. Now, it, it tests it in a couple different ways. The first is it discerns whether there's even faith there, and some of these statements in here talk about what happens to the person who has no faith, that doesn't believe in God or has rejected God. And for those who re reject God, tests and trials become their ultimate judgment. Tests and trials actually judge those who have no faith in God. Because those who have no faith in God have put all their faith in the things of this world. And since the foundations of this world will be shaken, whatever they could possibly put their faith in is going to be destroyed and it will result in their destruction. So it tests even the faith of the atheist or the person who's rejected God or is believing in some other kind of God because all those things are going to be shaken and destroyed. But for the child of God, disasters or trials or tests are for our own good. It says God intends them for us to test us. It says in that passage twice that he tests his children. And in fact, in one case, it uses kind of a, a visual metaphor. It says God sees everything and he tests his children and it says his eyelids test the children. And you're going, what are you talking about, eyelids? And it's using obviously metaphors for God or uh, you know, personifying him. But think of what happens. It's just saying, when you, when, in a sense, it's talking about when he squints. And when you squint at something, what are you doing? You might look at something, but then when you go like this, what are you doing? You're examining it, aren't you? You're trying to get a closer look. And so it uses that idea is that God sees everything that's going on. But for his children, he squints down and he examines us a little bit more. Now, understand, when God tests his children, it's not a test to see if you can be saved. That's determined between your faith and trust in him and, and leaning on him. This is a test for those who already are saved, and it's a test to grow those whom are his. You know, I was a teacher for a number of years before I went into ministry. And before I was a teacher, like many of us, I was a student for a lot of years as well. And as a student or as a teacher, you have very different views of tests. 
right? As a student, you're going, oh man, I got a test. What are you trying to do? You're trying to kill me? Is that your goal in life to ruin my life? This test is killing me. That's how you view tests as a student. As a teacher though, if you're a good teacher, if you're a fair teacher, if you're an honest teacher, if you're a teacher that cares for your students, you will give them tests because you know that tests grow them. And tests grow you in a couple ways. One thing tests do is they teach you what you don't know. The other thing tests do is they affirm in you what you do know. And when you are having a test, a, a healthy person says, I need to prepare for that test. So just the presence of a test is something that grows you and prepares you. Let me ask you something. If, if your children were enrolled in school and their teachers or their principal said, you know what, we want to be a school that's really good for our students so we don't ever give them any tests. And we are going to launch them out into this world so prepared and they're going to be so happy about their school experience because we don't ever give them any tests at all. How would you feel about that? You'd probably yank them out of there as fast as you could and, and put them in somewhere else because it's the tests when they're done properly, fairly, and by a good teacher that grows you, that helps you understand who you are. The same is true with God. He tests those he wants to grow. And what's interesting is if you look in the Bible, you, and I'm speaking in general terms, but there's two full books that are kind of dedicated to the two typical types of tests that God allows into our lives. There's one you might call a Jonah test. And if you've ever read the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah is about a certain kind of test. And I'll talk about what that looks like. And then there's a Job test. And the book of Job is a whole book about a Job type of test that God gives to believers. And there's these two types. Let me just flesh them out for you. A Jonah test, if you know the story of Jonah, a Jonah test is a test that God brings into your life because of your sin. And it's a test that's designed to examine a particular sin in your life. Okay, so if you have a particular sin in your life, God often will bring a Jonah test into your life to examine and make you aware of that particular sin. Let me explain it to you through the book of Jonah in a simple way. Jonah was a prophet of Israel, and God called Jonah to go and preach the gospel to the Ninevites. And the Israelites hated the Ninevites. The Ninevites were cruel and rude to the Israelites. And so at that time in, in Israelite history, uh, in much of Israelite history, the Israelites were, uh, had some major problems. One of them was elitism and prejudice. The Israelites thought they were the only people who were worthy of God's salvation. And so they wanted God all to themselves. And God's saying, no, I'm here to save any person that will believe in me. But the Israelites wanted nothing to do with that. They were prideful, they were prejudiced, they were elitist. So God calls Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, and Jonah goes, oh man, I don't want to go preach there because I know what kind of God you are. If I go and preach in Nineveh, they're going to repent, and then you're going to save them, and then I'm going to have to love them as a brother in, you know, in, in the Old Testament, Nineveh brother, I don't know what you call him at that time. And he didn't want to do it. So what does Jonah do? He takes off and heads in the other direction. He hops on a ship and starts heading in the opposite direction from Nineveh, thinking he can run from God. So Jonah is, in a sense, personifying the mindset of all of Israel. None of them wanted the Ninevites to be saved. And so he runs. And God sends a 
storm into his, the ship. Jonah says, finally, it was me, guys, throw me over the edge of the boat and, and everything will be fine. And then he gets swallowed up by a fish. And until he repents and calls out and acknowledges it, he stays in that storm. And then God spits him up on the shore. Jonah finally goes and he preaches in Nineveh. You see, a Jonah test is one of those tests that comes into your life after your brother and sister have told you multiple times about your issue. Your spouse guaranteed has because your spouse is your Holy Spirit. They know this issue. Your brother and sister do. Your co-workers do. Your boss knows it. Everyone knows it but you. And so God comes along and he grabs you by the nape of your neck gently and lovingly he sticks you in front of the mirror in a Jonah test and he says, are you the only one that does not see this character flaw in your life? What will it take for you to address it? And Jonah tests do that. They are tests because of your sin to wake you up to that sin. That's a Jonah test. Job tests are very different. Job tests are, are a lot more difficult Many times. Most of us think that every test is a Jonah test. In fact, the beginning of Job and much of the book of Job is that struggle that most people think every test is a Jonah test. So even when they see someone struggling, we get really judgmentally say, well, they got to be doing something wrong if that happened in their family. Because we think every test is a Jonah test. In fact, that's what Job's friends all thought. Job's friends all kept saying, Job, you just need to figure out what you're hiding in your life, what sin it is in your life, and if you'll confess it, God will make all this stuff go away. See, Job lost his children. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. He was sitting in a dump, it says at one point, scraping the boils on his you know, body. The only thing Job didn't lose was the one thing he wished he did lose. It was his wife. Right? She came up to him in the middle of that and said, why don't you just curse God and die? I mean, of all the things he could have lost, he probably wished she was lost, but he lost everything that he really wanted. That's just a joke, but you get what I'm saying. But even Job at some point said, you know, God, what's going on? What do I need to do? What do I need to confess? What do I need to change? And, and Job, like many of us, are tested to the very core of who we are. See, this isn't a test about a particular sin in our life. This is a test about the general core of what sin is about in us as broken people. And see, the core of sin in our lives is the fact that we want to be God. We want to be in control. And so here's how broken we are as humans. We'll even use religion to control God. We don't even want God to be God when we're religious people because we'll go to church. In fact, we'll go to all three services. right? We'll, we'll be in three different Bible studies. We'll do everything that we should that's religious, and we do that, but ultimately the reason we're doing it is because we think if I do all this, then God owes me a blessed life, at least how we perceive a blessed life. He owes me a, a, a good family. My marriage had better stay intact if I do all this stuff. My kids better follow God if I do all this. My job better prosper me because look at all that I'm doing for you, God. But see what we do with that? We think if we do all this stuff that we have God over a barrel and that he owes us a good life. But see, if you read the book of Job, you'll realize that at the beginning of the book, Satan comes into God's presence 
And God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job down there? Have you seen how righteous he is? How much he worships me? And Satan says to, to God, he says, of course he worships you. Why wouldn't he? He's got a great house. He's got tons of children. He's got all the wealth you could imagine. He's popular. Everyone knows him. Who wouldn't worship you when you've given them all these things? And he says, but I dare you to let me take some of those things away. And then watch how he curses you and wants nothing to do with you, God. And God gives Joe, uh, Satan permission. And little by little, he takes those things away. And the challenge of a Job test is that when all is said and done, when everything in your life in this world is stripped away, do you still have what's most valuable to you? Because if he can go after a relationship, if he can go after your popularity, if he can go after your control or your money, and it will cause your life to crumble, then you ain't worshiping God. You're just doing stuff for God so that you can worship what's truly most important to you. But if God can come into your life and strip everything in this world away, and you still love to worship him just for who he is, then you finally come to the most foundational sin in your life of wanting to worship yourself. Those are the two tests, the two types of tests that often come into our lives. Now what's interesting is those kinds of things help us put our faith in what's certain. In fact, I love this simple little illustration of a lumberjack. A lumberjack was out in the forest and he was getting ready to cut down a group of trees where he was at and he had his axe sharpened up and he was ready to go and he was just ready to swing at this first tree and he looks up and he sees a little mother bird building her nest in that tree. And in a moment of sympathy, he says, you know, oh, I don't want to cut down this tree because that's going to knock this mother and her nest down. So he takes his axe, he flips it around to the butt end of his axe, and he smacks the tree as hard as he could. And the tree just shakes. And, the, you know, after the bird kind of comes to its senses after being, you know, totally disoriented, it goes, you know, I can't build my nest here. This wouldn't be a good spot. So the mother bird flies over to the tree right next to it. And the lumberjack goes, oh, man, I mean, I'm cutting down all these trees here. So he, he walks over to that tree, takes the butt end of his axe, and smacks it against that bird as well and shakes it again, the, the tree. And the bird takes off and flies to the next tree. And this goes on, and the, and the lumberjack relentlessly torments this little bird until finally it flies away and starts building its nest inside this rock. And the lumberjack goes, she'll be safe there. And he starts to cut down his trees. See, what's interesting is we are very much like that bird. And God is very much like the lumberjack. And we insist on building our lives on trees that are guaranteed to fall down in this world. And God in his grace continues to shake them until we go and build our nest on the rock. And you might be saying, that's a you know, cute story, Chad, but 
you mean a rock? What rock are you talking about? I'm so glad you asked that question because it's exactly what I want to answer for you. You see, the rock is a rock that also hung on a tree. It wasn't a tree necessarily, it was a cross, but the real rock that you need to build and we need to build our lives on was a rock that hung on a tree that was shaken just like that little bird's tree was shaken. Only that rock and that tree was shaken by the very wrath and fury of God the Father who took his own son and allowed him to be nailed to a tree and he shook that tree until his own life was shattered, until his blood was spilled, until his soul was condemned with your sin and mine and he shook it and stripped him of everything that this world could possibly hope in so that after three days he could rise from the dead and you and I could know with absolute certainty that there is only one rock that can stand uncertainty. There is only one rock that when the wrath of God does finally come for all this earth and the foundations are totally destroyed, only one rock will stand firm. And only those who build their hope in that rock will withstand that storm. You see, if you look at what's scattered throughout this psalm, you see snippets of this in David. Look at these verses in Psalm 11, verse 1 and 4 and 7. David says this, In the Lord I take refuge. Then later he talks about where the Lord is. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. This is an established throne, a perfect throne. And he ends it by saying, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Here's my last point, and we'll close with this. Uncertainty is an opportunity to know who is certain. Uncertainty is an opportunity to know who is certain. You see, every person in this building right now is either just walked out of a test, you're in the middle of a test, or when you walk out those doors, your next test is right around the corner. That's just life. And if you insist on thinking that avoiding tests is the way to a good life, then you will have doomed yourself to a life of absolute uncertainty and difficulty. But if instead you will embrace what we see in this psalm, the fact that certainty is certain to come, but you have a rock to build your hope on, that can withstand any uncertainty, then it's not about avoiding uncertainties. It's about learning and growing and being built up and strengthening your hope and your faith in the midst of them. And now the things that you were afraid of are the very things that strengthen you and grow you and affirm you in what God has for you.
Some of you are facing uncertainty right now in your life. It may be a relationship that is about to crumble and, and you think your whole life is going to fall apart if that relationship crumbles. And it might because you've built your hope on that relationship rather than on the person of Jesus Christ. And this time of uncertainty might be your opportunity to change your priority and realize, unless my life is built on this one solid, certain relationship that was shook to the core and yet still stands, then my life will always be filled with uncertainties that will crush me. Yours might be a financial uncertainty. And you thought that all those things were going to protect you from any troubles in this life. And God is shaking that tree in your life to teach you that that'll never be your certainty. That'll never be your rock. Whatever it is, you no longer need to run from it or hide from it or try to escape it. You have learned how to face uncertainty with a certainty that will never be shaken.